love you guys a lot. You're a good group. I've been here, um, I don't know, what's it been since we had our first youth conference here? 18 years? Something like that? And I've been here most of those years. And you might, you might look at some of those of us who have been here a little while longer than you have and be like, oh, they must have it all together. It's actually not the case. You know, I come here and I'm so ministered to. I just, I receive the love of God through you guys and through the teaching and through the prayers. Thank you, Rosetta. And I, I just feel so ministered to, and I need that every bit as much as any of you guys do. So I'm, I'm just really thankful for um, this opportunity. And I'm thankful for what each of you guys brings to this. Um, some of you might feel like, well, I don't really have anything to give. I just come and receive. But actually, your presence here gives. You minister to other people, even just by your presence. So thank you for that. So, we've been looking at Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus when he was on his way to bring followers of Jesus um, to Jerusalem to be punished for their faith. He encounters Jesus. And then we saw how he spent time in Arabia alone, looking for answers, encountering God one-on-one, getting answers from God, learning in his heart what the truth really was. We saw how he spent 10 years in Tarsus, um, silent years, kind of off the radar, where his faith was being strengthened, deepened. He was learning to know Christ in the mundane, in the everyday life. And then we saw how he got into ministry along with Barnabas and how he went around preaching and planting churches and teaching and God was performing miracles through him and bringing people to Christ left and right. But we also saw how that his life was full of persecution and suffering and weakness and how that over time his ministry became condensed into one thing to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified and he gladly boasts in his weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on him and then around 60 AD 59 to 60 AD um, Paul is brought into captivity because of the riot that happens and accusations that are made and he ends up traveling to Rome In the end of 59 and the beginning of 60 A.D., uh, the story includes shipwreck, ending up on an island, stranded for a while, and people are healed there, and eventually they get on another ship, and they make their way to Rome. But after all those years of ministry, and you might have saw on the screen last night over 10,000 miles of travel. It's one thing for us to travel 10,000 miles. It was quite another thing to travel 10,000 miles. Those were quite some escapades that Paul and the people who traveled with him um, pulled off through the power of Christ in them. He ends up in Rome, captive, in prison, and he calls himself a prisoner of Christ. Now, I don't know what you got out of the, the movie last night that showed Paul 
in Rome as a prisoner in a very dark time for the church. That's actually um, a pretty accurate representation of what the church in Rome was experiencing uh, between 60 and 67 AD, um, where Nero was persecuting the Christians and he blamed them on, on uh, for half of the city burning down, used them as a scapegoat. Christians were burned on a regular basis um, out on the street. And it was a terrible time for the church. It was not, it didn't look glorious to the Christians. And Paul found himself right there in the middle of that situation, prisoner. And in the middle of that, the churches that he had planted, he said, in fact, all the people in Asia forsook him. And he says that when he was put on trial, no one came to stand with him. Except Jesus. He said, Jesus came and he stood with me. Is that what you expect from the life of someone who devotes themselves to the service of Christ and the gospel? Do you expect it to turn out like that? If you knew that was what your calling entailed, would you be willing to say yes? Is Jesus worth that much to you? So one of the last letters that Paul wrote, I don't know if you saw last night how he's, uh, Luke slips this paper to, is it Aquila? And he's like, make sure Timothy gets this. That was Second Timothy. That's one of the last letters that Paul wrote as far as we know. And he wrote it from prison. Now we'll look at Second Timothy. And I started looking at the pastoral letters, which is First and Second Timothy and the letter to Titus. They were all written late in Paul's life. Because I wanted to know, like, if you would have the experiences that Paul did, what would you write to someone in the last two years of your life? Okay, you're, you're in prison and you know God's, God's told you this is the end. This is the end of your race. And you know you've run the race well, but you know that the churches are still beset with problems and the future looks insecure for them and there's persecution and there are false teachers arising. And it's hard going for the New Testament church. What would you write to someone? How would you encourage them? So I started looking at First and Second Timothy through that lens, and I was surprised. I was I was really surprised at at what comes through those letters. So the tone that Paul takes is kind of like a dad who's about to leave his children behind, and he's giving them just some final words. Um, he kind of jumps from one thing to another because these are like the things that are on his mind that are important. He just wants to. Just just transmit these tidbits of truth that he hopes will become an anchor to his son in the faith, Timothy. Sam, are you back? Yeah, Sam's back there. When, when Sam's dad was in his final years, final year, um, when he was sick and, and he knew that he had a short time to live, do you guys remember how, some of you might not be old enough to remember very well what all happened back then. Do you remember how his tone changed and like there was a weight to the words that he spoke that weren't, wasn't there before? And he had, he had often preached with anointing and power and God, God used him in powerful ways before that. 
But in those last months of his life, and there was one um, recording that I listened to. I wasn't there in person where he was just talking to the church. And there was this deep brokenness and humility and genuineness that I had never seen in his life. Uh, Like it was so incredibly powerful to see that. The words of a dying man who's leaving his final thoughts with humility, with brokenness, realizing, you know what? It's not me from here out. It's not going to be me. It's God from here out. And he's sharing those words. It's so powerful. And that's kind of how I see Second Timothy. Paul's there at the end of his life. It's a low place. He's already just counted everything as lost. But even though he had counted everything as lost, he had pretty much just lost everything too at the end. No one stood by him alone in prison, praying, as he says, night and day for the believers. What a place he found himself in. And then he gives some of these last instructions to Timothy. And there's some stuff in there for us. It fits for us. Now, there are criti- critics of some of the content of First and Second Timothy. Um, the authorship of First and Second Timothy were basically uncontested until about the 19th century when it became popular to just contest everything. But uh, basically they became contested because critics were saying mm, they show a lesser mind at work. This couldn't have been Paul because we look at Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians and, man, there's, and Romans and there's so much weighty theology there and it's so well written and he follows a flow of thought. And here, instead of refuting error, he's just denouncing it. Instead of developing the truth, he's more concerned about guarding the truth, hanging on to what's already there. So why do you think it took that tone? Because Paul was in his last days, and he started seeing, from here out, it's not me, it's God. God's going to handle this. God's got this. And I can just put these little bits of truth out there. God's going to use that in the lives that it gets to. I think it's part of maturing in Christ. Maybe realizing that it doesn't all hang on us. That God's going to do the work, right? He's going to do it in every one of you. He talks about faithfulness a lot. I don't know about you guys, but when I was 18, I didn't like that word. I I seriously didn't. Not because I didn't think faithfulness was a good thing, but it sounded just kind of stale and stuffy and like that doesn't sound like um a magic key to success does it like faithfulness who wants to hear that well just be faithful endurance through suffering that's a theme that just kind of runs through uh, that last letter to timothy he tells him in chapter 2 verse 3 share in the suffering share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ 2 verse 9 I am suffering for the gospel bound like a criminal but the word of God is not bound endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory He says if we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he will deny us but if we are faithless he remains faithful And he tells him, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. This is faithfulness, endurance. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The Lord's servant must not strive, but be kind, 
patiently enduring evil. You're in it for the long haul. The last days will be times of difficulty calling for endurance. He, he tells him in chapter 3, You have followed my teaching, conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Timothy, you've seen this in me. My persecutions and sufferings, which persecutions I endured. Indeed, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You want a promise to claim? There's one. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Always be in a right mind. Endure suffering. And he tells him toward the end of chapter 4, toward the end of the letter, I am ready to be poured out like a drink offering. This is what my life looks out, just being poured out for the Lord. And here at the end, I see I'm just going to be poured out like a drink offering. You know what happens to a drink offering when you pour it on the altar? It just kind of goes down and runs down over everything and it disappears. It's gone. And Paul saw his life as that. Uh, That illustration that they use in the movie of like, you know, water in your hand and it trickles out and it's gone and it disappears into the vastness of the ocean. He really did have that perspective. It's not about my life. It's not about my accomplishments, but it is about Christ and his kingdom, which is eternal and unshakable and enduring. Just be faithful to that. So endure, Timothy. Hold on to what you know. Most of you guys know a lot. You've been taught a lot of truth in your life. And if you'll simply grab on to what you know, hold on to it, persevere in it, you can go a long way with that. So Paul's letter to Timothy shows that he has a profound concern with preserving the foundation that he had laid, the, the bedrock that he had put down during his years of ministry. And he was concerned that that would be eroded by these lightweights who were coming in and they wanted to become teachers of the law without understanding either what they were saying or the things about which they were making confident assertions. He's like, Timothy, don't listen to them. Don't listen to these new doctrines that are coming along. The truth that I deliver to you is what you need. It's a solid foundation for your life. Hang on to that. He was jealous over the truth that he had given to the churches that he had planted. And he did not want them to be drawn away from that to something that would take them away from Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy. My beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelled first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. To Timothy, my beloved child. Timothy didn't really have a dad in his home, at least not spiritually, because Paul refers to the the faith that he had as coming through his grandmother and his mother. Um, his dad was a Greek, and he may not have been Uh, religious at all. We don't know a lot about him, but it's likely that he was not there as a spiritual father for Timothy. And so Paul stepped in 
when Timothy was a very young man, possibly just in his uh, teens still, and he took him under his wing, and Timothy traveled with him, and he saw the stuff that Paul did, and he watched as Paul taught the gospel, and as Paul planted churches, he got to see firsthand the power of God working through this man, and he became like a father to Timothy. Sometime along there, Paul saw some struggles in Timothy. I don't know what. He says, I remember your tears. And as I remember your tears, I long to see you. Maybe he wanted to be the comforting father presence in Timothy's life again. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Then he reminds Timothy of the truth in the scripture. Why did he appeal to truth in scripture when Timothy had followed him and watched his life and seen all the things that he had done, he could have appealed to those things and said, hey, Timothy, and he did. He used his example as an example for Timothy, but he could have said, hey, Timothy, just look at all the things that we did together and remember how we planted churches uh, throughout Asia and look at my life and follow that. But he points him to truth that was actually transcendent it was bigger than paul and paul had become aware of this it's bigger than me yes it's the god i serve with a clear conscience as did my ancestors and your ancestors did your mother your grandmother but i'm not making an appeal to the signs and wonders that you saw through me or even to the powerful presentation of the gospel that you saw in me i'm making an appeal to the truth which is transcendent to what you've seen in me it's bigger than me it's bigger than my life And you can put your faith on that because it is enough. There will be others who bring along sensational new truths, new doctrines. But Timothy, you are going to be anchored and rooted in the truth that was delivered to you from the word of God. The truth that has been established in scripture. Maybe this is why he was remembering him day and night. What else is he going to do in prison, right? praying for him, remembering him, crying out to God that Timothy would remain steadfast, that he would endure when the going gets tough. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Back there somewhere, Paul had laid his hands on Timothy and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he had imparted to him a spiritual gift that was still operating in him. But he's saying, Timothy, fan this flame of the gift of God to life. Feed the flame. Stoke it back up. Because if not, it's going to die. Because God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Blow on it. You know, um, I used to live way back in the mountains in Honduras where there's no electricity and, and uh, people often didn't have money to buy batteries for the flashlight. Um, they had these big clunky flashlights, but the, the batteries were kind of expensive. And so they would use, um, Weston, what it's called, what, what's it called? The, the heartwood? Fatwood, yes. Uh, fatwood from, from pine trees. You know, the, the wood that's at the very center, it's really, really sappy. You can actually just take a, a match or another flame and it'll light within seconds. And makes a great light. They'd often, you know, set it in the windowsill of the adobe walls or uh, somewhere, and it would make a, a light uh, in the house. Um, I preach to 
smoking fat wood right in front of me. They'd like lay it on a little table here and it would kind of smoke and you, your eyes would burn as you preach. Um, but there was something that you had to do when you took one of those on the trail. Remember one time uh, visiting somebody down the mountain a little ways and it had rained that night and I didn't have a flashlight along. This is my brother and I. And so they gave us a, a fat wood torch, um, just, you know, a couple slivers of pine wood and they lit it. But before they gave it to us, they took another kind of wood, a piece of something like oak, and they put it in there with the sticks of fatwood. And I didn't know why they did that, but they explained it. They said, well, if the fire goes out on the fatwood, it won't relight. However, the oak will have an ember, and you can blow on it, and it will relight. And what are the odds? We're hiking up the trail, and it's pitch dark. Uh, because it's cloudy, it had just rained, and it's muddy, the trail is super slick, and I'm carrying the torch, and I slip, and I hit the ground, and just like that, the fire was out, and it was pitch black, except for this tiny little ember in that oak wood, and I blew on it, blew on it, and sure enough, it lit the fat wood back up. Without that ember, we'd have been without a light. That's happened before, too. But Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy, the gift of the spirit that's in you, it might be down to an ember and you need to blow on it because God wants to use it in you. Some of you have received giftings from the Holy Spirit that God is wanting to use to build up the body, to encourage people right around you. And you've let that flame get knocked out. Maybe it's been knocked out because... You took some hard knocks. You need to blow on that ember and rekindle the gift that's in you because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. It's fear that keeps it out. It's fear that keeps you from functioning in that gift. Oftentimes it's timidity. It's just feeling like God can't use me for much, right? Do you guys feel that sometimes? Like you just feel like your life is pretty insignificant and God's not using you in any big ways. That's not from God. He's given you a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. That just means a right way of thinking. Think the way God thinks. That's what a sound mind is. Just being in a right state of mind. I don't know what the, what the gift was that, that Paul had given to Timothy when he laid his hands on him. And I'm kind of glad that he doesn't tell us. You know why? Because it applies to whatever gift it is that God has given you. Whatever gift of the Spirit is in you, it needs to be fanned to flame. Don't let it die. Don't let it just sit there like a little ember. Blow on it. Blow on it by reminding yourself of the promise of God that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and of a right way of thinking. Spirit of power. It's power over sin, over the darkness in your own life. It's power over the kingdom of darkness out there. God's given you that power. He's invested it in you. Power to be bold in ministering to others. The spirit of love. Love for other people. That's what the Holy Spirit does to you. 
He gives you love for people that don't deserve your love, for people that you would maybe just ignore otherwise. He gives you this love that you can't even explain. And it starts flowing out of you and touching other people. But it doesn't start with love that flows out of you. You know what it starts with? It starts with a love that flows inward as you see, wow, God loves me. And he has invested into me his power. He wants to work through me because he loves me. And as you receive that love, it flows out. It doesn't stay inward focused. It flows out to other people and says, how can I transmit that love to someone else? How can I help them in, when they're discouraged? A spirit of self-control. Of not being just blown back and forth by every wind that comes along. But of staying centered. And of being anchored in the word of God. And of knowing what truth is. And staying in the center of that truth. Not a spirit of fear. It seems like this spirit of fear may have been a long-term struggle for Timothy. Uh, Earlier, Paul tells him, don't let anyone despise your youth. Don't be timid. Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Now, if I would have been uh, a protege of Paul, following him around, seeing the stuff he did, I would have probably been pretty intimidated by his ministry and then he leaves you in leadership of one of the churches he planted timothy's at ephesus and he's responsible for ephesus and some of the surrounding churches paul tells him to to ordain elders in those other churches wouldn't you feel intimidated after the people had witnessed the powerful stuff that god did through paul and maybe other apostles who came through planting churches and you're left there like I don't have many answers. I'm not very old. I'm not very experienced. And you might feel like people see that about you. They see that you're not very wise. You're not very experienced. And you can let that timidity begin to squash the gift of God in you to where you're not functioning it anymore, in it anymore. Especially as young people. We can let it squash the gift of God in us. I see it in some of you here today some of you feel inferior to others you don't feel like god can use you as greatly as someone else maybe because you're not very outspoken maybe because you feel timid maybe because you feel like you're not super spiritual like others who are uh, have flashier gifts or are more mature so you don't feel like god can use you as much as someone else paul wrote to the corinthians about that he's like stop comparing yourselves to each other my hand, my hand has some amazing abilities. Now, maybe not so much in softball, but it, it, our hands can do some incredible things, right? Like the motor skills that we have, the fine-tuned stuff we can do. My foot never looks at my hands like, eh, I really wish I were a hand. This is really uh, intimidating that I can't like uh, move my digits the way the hand can. My foot doesn't compare itself with my hand because it has a different function. And it's it's equally important. I don't like I don't want to give up a hand or a foot. I want both of them and I want them both to be functioning in the things that they're made to do. God wants each one of you to be functioning in the things that he made you for, that he called you into. He wants you to be functioning not like somebody else and their gift, but like you who he created you to be 
in the gift of the Spirit that He has invested in you. And you know what else? He has given each one of you gifts. There's nobody in here who's excluded. God invests His gifts in everybody. Do you believe that? Maybe? You want to raise your hand if you believe that? Some of you almost believe it. God wants you to believe it. You know why? Because he wants to use you. And as long as you're sitting on the sidelines saying, God can't use me like he can use somebody else, you're not going to reach the potential that he has for you. He wants to use you to build up the body. Therefore, Timothy, since God invested this in you, since he's given you this spirit of power and love and of a sound mind, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Don't be afraid to associate with people who are working in the gospel, who are held in disrepute in the world. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an an apostle and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. My sufferings are connected to my calling, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. Can you say that with confidence? I know whom I have believed because I've had that personal encounter. And I'm convinced that what he has entrusted to me, the deposit that he has put in me, he's able to guard it until the day of Jesus. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Since you have this power, love, a sound mind in you, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed about the testimony of the Lord. You can speak it out with boldness. Even if you're not naturally a bold person, the Spirit can make you bold to speak it out. Paul says a little later, he says, At my first defense, when he was on trial, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Timothy, don't be like that. I think that's what he's saying with that. Timothy, don't be like that. Don't be ashamed of standing with the people of Christ when they suffer for truth. Don't be ashamed to be identified with them when it's wildly unpopular with the world. And it is increasingly so. How many of you still want to go hang out with Paul for the afternoon? Maybe after what you saw last night. It's a little different, isn't it? This isn't the the Paul who's out there planting churches and doing all kinds of miracles. This is the Paul who's suffering for his faith, who is a prisoner, who doesn't see a future, future out there, but he's sitting here saying, the time of my departure is near. I've fought the fight. I've finished the course. Would you be willing to identify with that, with that person? I share in suffering for the gospel, 
by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling because of his own purpose and grace. It's his purpose and his grace working through us, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This is why I suffer as I do, because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, the gospel. That's what he has entrusted to each one of us. Regardless of the spiritual gifts that he has or hasn't given you, he has entrusted you with the gospel. And the gospel is more than just standing out on a street corner proclaiming some words or coming up here and preaching. It's more even than, than telling your friends about how Jesus died and rose again and how he can save them from their sins. The gospel is more than that. You know what it is? It is a transformed life on the inside. It's a transformed reality within. That is the gospel that has been entrusted to you. And that is what works powerfully through you guys. That's what we see on a weekend like this. We see it come through you guys. The power of the gospel. That's, That's why you're pursuing Christ. That's why you want holiness. That's why you want freedom from sin. It's because of the power of the gospel that he has invested in you. And he's saying, God, who entrusted this in me, to me, is able to keep it until the final day. I'm persuaded of that. Now, Paul, Paul often looks at his life and he's like, I'm being really careful. Lest after all this ministry that I've done, all this stuff that I've done, lest I myself should be disqualified. He didn't just say, well, I'm a big, big minister of the gospel. And so obviously my life is in good standing. He looked at himself and he said, I want to make sure that I am not running in vain. And every one of us needs to do that. But we do it with the confidence that God has put the power of the gospel in us and he is going to keep it. Because it's his power working in us for his glory. That's why Paul said, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, sword? He had experienced all that stuff. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Do you know who can say that? Someone who sees that the power of the gospel that has been invested in him or her is there through the power of God. And it's the righteousness that depends on faith. That means it is ongoing through the faith that you have in the power of God, not in your own ability to work it out, but in God's ability to do it in you. That is what transforms us. That kind of faith. Faith in Christ, not faith in ourselves. He told the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Are you guys persuaded of that? That he who started a good work in you We'll bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It might be easier to say, yep, I am convinced of that right now while you're sitting here in a youth conference and you've been enjoying fellowship with other people who are on fire for God. But what about in those moments where you feel really discouraged 
and your life's not going well, and you're really disappointed in what you've seen in yourself, because there's nothing that beats you down the way disappointment in yourself does. What about in those moments? Can you say the same thing? I know whom I've believed, and I'm persuaded that what he has entrusted to me, he is going to keep it. I'm convinced that the one who started the good work in me is going to bring it to completion at the day of Christ. You know what? It doesn't come to completion before that. Even Paul, toward the end of his life, he's saying, I'm not one who has attained. But I still just, I forget the things that are behind me, and I press forward to the mark. Because I know that it will be brought to completion at the day of Christ. When we finally see him and we're finally free from this struggle with sin, then we'll see it brought to completion. Not before then. Until then, we're going to be in the struggle against the flesh, against sin. So because of this assurance that you have, he can tell Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words which you heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The deposit is there by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. It's not just something that you believe and then you hold on to it and you hope that you don't forget to believe, but there's actually someone who's alive, a live person, a spirit who is in you keeping that deposit. And he's, he's guarding it jealously inside of you because he really, really cares about the outcome. He cares about it more than you do. What if we'd live every minute with that reality, just knowing the Spirit is in us and he's guarding that deposit in us, that treasure that we have in vessels of clay, and even though the vessels are sometimes cracked and leaky or have defects and flaws, the treasure is there and the Spirit is guarding it jealously. There's entire religious systems that have been built on safeguarding the truth. And it's impossible. You can't safeguard the truth with a religious system. There's only one thing that can safeguard the truth. That is the Holy Spirit working in an honest heart. That's the only safeguard for truth. Guys, that's the only safeguard that you have for the truth that you hold. It's the Holy Spirit working in you. In your honest heart. As long as you're willing to say, God, yes, teach me. Correct me. Change me. Let your word do its job in me. The Holy Spirit will safeguard the truth in you. That is the only antidote to deception and walking away from the truth and thinking that you're in it. It's the only antidote. There's so many twistings of the truth. More in our generation than ever before. There's twistings of the truth. And you can so easily get sidetracked and start following someone who appears to be presenting the truth. But then halfway through, there's a twist that will lead you astray. You need the Spirit of God in you, safeguarding the truth. And he's, he's zealous about doing that. He's jealously guarding the treasure that God has invested in you. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. And I think the grace that is in Christ Jesus, part of that is coming through the words that Paul is speaking to Timothy. You know what's interesting? A, a lot of his epistles, Paul, uh, his letters to the churches, Paul uh, begins with um, grace and peace and mercy and whatever else. Grace to you. And he ends it with the grace of our Lord be with you. The grace of God comes through the word. It comes to us through the word. And then when we receive the word, it, it empowers us. It comes to life inside of us. And we need the grace to stay with us, to go with us, transforming us as we work it out in our lives. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, a soldier puts up with stuff that a civilian would never put up with. I don't think anybody goes into boot camp thinking, hey, this is going to be a really comfortable life. This is kind of like, you know, I'm just going to kick back and take it easy and sip a margarita on the beach. That's not the objective when you go to boot camp. What is the objective? The objective, well, one of the objectives is actually to subject yourself to hardship and suffering intentionally. You do it under the guidance of somebody who yells at you a lot. You do it intentionally because you know that the end result is going to be, it's going to toughen you up. But that's not the only reason. You don't want to just like be like ripped like a Marine or something. You actually have an objective that's bigger than that. You're wanting to be part of something that's vastly more powerful than you ever could be on your own. You become part of a machine that can go out there and conquer. It can squash the enemy. It can do amazing feats through battle and warfare. That's why people joined the army, not because they wanted a comfortable life. And Paul's saying, Timothy, that's, that's the mindset you have to have. I used to have a really good friend um, whose dad was a Navy SEAL. He actually um, joined the SEALs when he was 17. I'm, I'm not sure. I think the age limit was 18, but somehow they could get in just before they turned 18. So he was the youngest one in his, in his batch. And the stories he would tell of the hardship they went through were really mind-blowing. Like they would take them, they'd throw them into a pool of water with all this heavy gear and stuff on them, and they'd let them pass out. They'd have to like be unconscious before they'd drag them out and resuscitate them, and then they'd do it again. And they had all these, these hardships that they subjected themselves to, and the objective wasn't just to see like to what extremes can they push a human body before they, they actually die and can't be resuscitated. The objective was to create a soldier that was not afraid of hardship. They would walk them through the jungle without lights where they had to hold on to the person next to them. And they had all these uh, traps and wires and stuff that they had to navigate through. And when you would find one, you'd get yourself through it. And then you'd help the guy behind you come through. They'd develop team skills through that. But the worst part was what they called Hell Week, where they put you into a, a little wooden cage, really tight and confined for a week. And they wouldn't give you any food and every couple of minutes, somebody would come, up, come along and beat on the top of your cage, and you had to yell out your ID number. And then they'd pull you out occasionally, and they'd interrogate you, and they'd try to get information out of you that you couldn't give. And if you gave them the wrong information, you were out. Why'd they do all this? Because they had to learn to endure when it got hard. They had to be ready for the worst possible scenario. So they wouldn't give up. 
their team, if they got caught. Paul saying, Timothy, you need to have this mindset. Because a soldier endures hardness so that he can please the one who enlisted him. These guys want to make their team the best. They want to be the best. They want to be part of something that's bigger and more powerful than themselves. And I think that that is an intrinsic quality that God's put into human beings and especially young people. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And you know where that can be channeled? It can be channeled to the most powerful and glorious kingdom that has ever existed. You learn to endure hardness with that mindset. You're armed with a mind that's not afraid to suffer because you know you're there to please the one who has enlisted you. You want to make him great. You want his kingdom to come. You want his kingdom to squash out darkness. You want to see the enemy defeated. And you want to be part of something that's bigger than just you because you've seen what you can do in the flesh and it's not very much. The main thing you can do in the flesh is let yourself down and get yourself into scrapes. But if you enlist and you begin to strive to please the one who has enlisted you, you'll become part of something that's much bigger than you, much more powerful, much more glorious. And supremely satisfying. There's nothing more satisfying than having that identity as being enlisted by Christ and of hearing his voice in your life saying, Well done. Good job. I'm pleased with your life. Did you know there is nothing that will satisfy a human being more than that? Some of you are crying out to hear that. You want to hear that approval over your life. Enlist. Just just cast yourself to Christ. Serve Him. Give up the stuff that you think makes you happy because it doesn't. Enlist and please Him. And you'll find a satisfaction that's much greater than anything else you could experience. That's what Paul was talking about when he said, I'm giving up everything else. It's not just so that I can have all my accomplishments over here and, and call them trash. No, it's so that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which depends on faith. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Is this something you would write in last, your last letter to someone when you're trying to encourage them to hold out when the going gets tough. Remember Jesus Christ. For the which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Timothy, hold on to what you've believed. Don't let go. Don't deny him. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There it is. Remember Jesus. Hold on to him. Dying with him is a prerequisite to living with him. 
We don't fall into the ground and die, lose ourselves, lose our own identity. We can never assume the identity of Christ. We can never assume the identity of a son, of a daughter, unless we're willing to die first to assume his life. He goes on to say, now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. If we'd stop there, we say there's some vessels of gold and silver and there's some that are just like wood and then there's the, you know, clay. Kind of anybody can buy one of those. If we'd stop there, we'd probably all sit here and think, hmm, am I a vessel of gold, silver, wood, clay? If I look back over the last couple of months, I'd say clay. Probably with uh, like, it was like a seconds that they had there on the pile. And, I, I, you know, it's available pretty cheap. He doesn't stop there. He says, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house. It's for all of us. We can all be useful vessels, not just a vessel of wood or clay, but actually a vessel of gold and silver that he picks up and he's like, I'm I'm proud to put this on the table in front of my guests and to serve them the best wine in this gold goblet. We can be that, that kind of vessel that God is pleased to use if we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable. How do we do that? Well, next he says, flee youthful passions. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think youthful passions. Probably most of us think right away of sexual impurity because that's often associated with youth. But it's much more than that. It's about what you can accomplish in your strength. Guys, you're in the prime of your life. Okay, this is about as good as it gets. I'd say 18, 20, 22. That's, that, that's like, that's an awesome time. See, some of you are shaking your heads. It really is. You'll look back at those years and you're like, man, I was so strong and I was like so motivated and and like had so much energy and passion and zeal. It's a wonderful time of your life. But what we tend to do with it is we look at what we can get out of it for ourselves. It's whatever exalts me, whatever makes me look good to my friends, my peers, whatever exalts me. That's the trap that we fall into with youthful desires. And it's not all bad passions. Some of it's good desires that are misguided. And he's saying, run from those. Run away from youthful desires. And instead of pouring your life into that to see how you can maximize your success, your potential, run after righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Those are hashtag goals for young people. If you can pursue righteousness, love, faith, peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, you'll see that God begins forming in you something that is so much better than the best, most ripped, most successful, most beautiful version of yourself. In fact, that will begin to be distasteful to you as you see the power of Christ rests on you in your weakness, in your deficiencies. He rests on you as you pursue righteousness and faith and love. 
Cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And here's part of the reason that we need to be diligent to do this. Because, he says, in the last days, there's going to be difficult times. The last days aren't easier than the earlier days. The last days are harder because Satan is on a rampage. He knows that his time is getting very short. He knows that Jesus is going to return very soon. And he is desperate to get any one of you that he can off track to get you away from Christ. He wants to take as many casualties out as he can before Christ returns. Paul said people will be lovers of self, proud, arrogant, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that sound like a description of this generation? Now, you might think that those people are the kinds of people that you find, like, in the ghetto or in prison or, you know, south side. I don't know. I don't know what you think of when you think of that list. But listen to this. Having an appearance of godliness. Whoa. On the outside, they look godly. If you just take them at at face value, you might think, oh, that's not a bad person. Because they cover all this stuff, this proud, arrogant, abusive, ungrateful, unholy, heartless inside is covered up with a facade of godliness, and it stinks. They have an appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Does the power of Christ come through you, or is it just an appearance of godliness? And inside, you're one of those ungrateful, unholy, reckless, lover of pleasure. You can have the whole list inside, and outside looks, yeah, looks like a nice, godly person, but you're denying the power of it. The power of God will transform you. It will work through you. It will work in you. To bring the character, the nature of Jesus inside of you. Timothy, avoid people like that. People who have an appearance of godliness and deny its power. Avoid them. Young people, avoid those people. Don't hang out with them. Because I guarantee if you hang out with them, you will begin to become like them. There's more potential for it in your stage of life than at any other time. You hang out with people who have that appearance of godliness but deny the power of it. They're not transformed on the inside. You will become like them. Paul's telling Timothy, his son in the faith, Timothy, avoid those people. Don't have anything to do with them. Hang out with people who have been transformed on the inside and through whom you see the power of God flowing. It doesn't have to look perfect because the power of God does come through imperfect people, imperfect vessels. Man, I still see a lot of imperfections in DK and he's, you know, he's up there pretty, pretty close compared to a lot of us. We'll never be perfect until we get to the day of Christ when we see the work completed. But if you see someone who has an appearance of godliness, 
and who denies its power, don't hang out with them. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul can say this with confidence, not because he's boasting about himself and his accomplishments. He, plenty of other places he says, I don't count myself to have attained. I'm not perfect. I haven't reached the goal yet. I'm still becoming like Christ. But he's saying, Timothy, you have an example in me and you can follow me in that example. You can follow me as I follow Christ. There are people whose lives I've looked at and I've said, I want to be like them. Because I see there's a genuineness, there's a purity in their life, there's a devotion to Christ that is rare. And I want to know how they got there. And so I look at what they do and I look at how they live and how they speak and how they think. And I want to be like that. Find people like that. Don't follow people, but follow them as they follow Christ. Follow people who give that example of good conduct, the aim of life that is set on Christ, patience, love, and steadfastness. Watch their example. Watch how they live and do the same. And even more importantly, hang on to the word. Hang on to the word of truth that you have received. Dig into it. Let it saturate you. He says, Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. The scripture that you learned since you were young. And he says, it's a big advantage for you that you've known it since you're young. Because it's in your mind and it reminds you of how you should live. Let that scripture transform you. All scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching. Be saturated by it. Let it come into your life and saturate you. It's profitable for reproof. Let it reprove you. Let it show you up because it will do that. If you have an honest heart, the word of God will show you up. Let it be profitable for correction. Sometimes we find ourselves walking one way and we think we're doing pretty good and suddenly, wham, we get hit with scripture and we realize that that was actually not the way. It was off by, by 10 degrees, and I need to correct my course. That's what Scripture does. It corrects you. As long as you look at it with an honest heart, and you are a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. Don't just go get the measurement. Cut the two before, right, Andy? <laughs> Live it out. It's profitable for training in righteousness. It will train you in righteousness, to be like Christ, to let Christ's likeness be worked out in your life. And what's the outcome? It's that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, complete, equipped, ready for every good work. You want to be complete and equipped? Let the word of God dwell in you. Get a hold of it. Believe in it. See it as God breathed. And what you said earlier about it's either true or it's not true, that actually hit me really hard. Because I was like, sometimes I look at the promise of God, I'm like, well, that's kind of true. No, it's either all the way true, and I would never say those words because, of course, I believe that up here that it's all the way true. But sometimes in my heart, I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true. It's either all the way true or it's not true at all. It's either truth in its entirety or it's a lie. And if you're going to accept it as truth, it's going to change you. It's going to come into you and it's going to equip you for every good work. So Paul says, 
I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I see my life as expendable. I've been poured out for the sake of Christ. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who love his appearing. Look, that's so easy. There's a crown of righteousness that's stored up, laid up for you if you love the appearing of Christ. You know what will make you love the appearing of Christ? If you look on Christ and you see who he is. It will make you yearn for his return like nothing else. Experiencing Christ will make you yearn for his return. In the the times when I have been most close with Christ and experiencing him most deeply have been the times where I just, I yearn for him to come back. I'm like, Jesus, please just come back. I just want to see you. I want to see who you really are because right now we just see a little bit of you. Yearn for the return of Christ. You know what will make you not yearn for the return of Christ? Sin. Sin in your life. It obscures it. It makes us not want that. We want something else instead of Christ. So cleanse yourself from it. Let the word of God come into you and correct you, reprove you, put you into the truth. So Timothy, fan the flame of the gift of God that is in you. Blow on it. If it's been knocked out recently, blow on it. Let it come to life. You know, I think we sometimes have a misconception of what New Testament church was. Well, I'm curious what comes to your mind when you think of the real New Testament church, okay, compared to what we experience today. Any, any takers? What do you think of? Communion? Okay. Communion, community, that kind of communion. Any, anybody else? Power. What kind of power? Holy Spirit power. What comes with that? Life? What? Unity? What else? Quick fire here. Healings? What else? Forgiveness? Anything else? New Testament church. The real New Testament church. What do you see? Family? Prayer, lots of it, right? Oh, it was new. So there, there, we, there we got one that doesn't apply to us because we're not as new, right? But in a sense, we are because we're kind of on a new journey ourselves. We're all experiencing this for the first time. We've never experienced it before. Anything else? Persecution? I think we often think of like a church that's really on fire, zealous, I mean, this, this is brand new stuff, and they're changing the world, and the gospel is spreading, and they're seeing signs and wonders and miracles and the power of the Holy Spirit as he moves out into new groups of people who have never heard the gospel. That's what I think of when I think of New Testament church. Do you know what else is New Testament church? Revelation chapter 2, 3, 4. Do you know what that says about the New Testament church? Guys, this is just a couple decades after Jesus went back to heaven. You know what he says there? He says, some of you guys are lukewarm. You've lost your first love, and I I feel like spitting you out of my mouth. 
Some of you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Some of you think that you're well off, you're rich, and you don't have need of anything, but you're pitiable and poor and blind and naked. You're a church that's beset with issues. And some of you have allowed sin in your midst. This was New Testament church. Actually. Sounds kind of like what we're surrounded by, right? But you know what is so hopeful through all of that? You know what the message of Jesus was to each one of those churches? Anybody? Conquer. That's the word. Again and again, he said to him who conquers. You can conquer in the middle of that situation. He didn't say run and and find another church that doesn't have these problems. He said to the one who conquers again and again to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life to the one who conquers. I will give a crown of life. Be faithful to death. I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. It means he's going to feed you personally. Just between you and him. I will give him a white stone on which a name is written that no one knows but he himself. This is to the people who are in the middle of these churches that have problems. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority to rule the nations. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. You know what the white garments are? The righteousness of the saints that comes through Jesus Christ. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. Do you know that's a promise for you? Do you ever think about that as a promise for you? You could sit on the throne with Jesus? That's crazy. Because we could never attain to that except through Him in us. He will make us conquerors. Know this. The one who began the good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. So guys, how do we fan to flame the gift that is in us? How do we guard the deposit that's in us? You know how a lot of it happens? It happens through each other. It happens through someone else calling you out and lifting up your hands when your hands are hanging down and you don't feel like you can pick them up. It happens through someone else coming along and just speaking into your life and saying, hey, I see the life of Christ in you. And I want to just blow on it a little bit. And I want to see the Holy Spirit working through you powerfully because I believe God has called you into his purposes. Why don't we do that more? Do you know why? Because we're kind of awkward it out or embarrassed or we feel timid or we feel like, who am I to speak that into Sam's life? Like, I don't really have anything to give. You guys have something to give to each other. You can blow on the flame that's there or the ember that has gone out. You can call out the gifts in each other. Jason, 
God's calling you to speak truth. It's not going to look flashy or big, but it's going to be the kind of thing where you're not afraid to say truth, to speak it out. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit in you, and I see it in you, and it's going to come to life in you. John, you've been called to preach the gospel, and you already know that. You need to blow on the flame that God's put in you. The gift of the Spirit in you needs to come to life. It needs to be developed. It needs to be protected, because otherwise it's going to get knocked out. And you're going to become disillusioned at your own failures instead of looking at the power of God resting in you. As long as you look to him, he's going to make that flame grow and he's going to use it in a beautiful way to minister to the body of Christ. There's a lot of you in here who are called to encourage. Do you remember what Barnabas did when Saul was in Jerusalem? And the apostles were like, not that guy. And Barnabas is like, I see the good in him. I see that God has actually transformed him. You know, there's people sitting right in here who have that gift. Kevin, I see it in you. You are an encourager. And I think you often feel timid about it. But actually, God wants you to come along some of your peers and encourage them. And you underestimate how much he can use you to blow on their flame and to bring life into them. He's going to use you to be a solid encourager. Sometimes that's going to look like pushing somebody else out. But God's going to use it in a powerful way in your life. Guys, why don't we all just stand and let's, let's come up here to the front. And what I want you to do is I want you to say, God, how do you want to use someone else? What's the gift that you've placed in them? You ask God, let the Holy Spirit reveal that to you. And you call it out. And it doesn't have to be a big, flashy thing. It doesn't have to be crystal clear, like God's going to use you and send you to a small island off the coast of Africa. It doesn't have to be anything like that. Maybe it's something that you actually see in their personality that God is using. That's okay. Call it out. Call it out in someone else. Look at the person next to you and say, God is going to use you through this specific thing in your life. Are you afraid to do that? Are you afraid to blow on someone else? God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and of a sound mind. So you guys ready? You ready to blow on each other's flames? Or maybe you feel like, I need my flame blown. I don't even know what gift God has given me. Like right now I feel so down. I don't know how he can use me. That's okay if you're in that spot. Just tell someone. Let them blow on your flame. Okay? You guys okay with that? All right, let's, let's do it. God, we just ask that you would minister through us to the body of Christ. You've put so many different gifts in this group. Some of us have been discouraged and our hands have been hanging down and our knees are weak and we feel like we don't have anything to offer. I pray, Lord, that you would lift up the hands that hang down and breathe encouragement and life and hope into every heart in this room. Don't pass anyone by, God. I pray for the person in the corner who doesn't feel like they have anything to give. I pray, Lord, that you would breathe your life and hope into them. 
and that you, they would see how powerfully your spirit is about to use them as they surrender to you. God, let us see that it is not in our strength, but it's our weakness that you use. We'll boast in our weakness because then the power of Christ will rest on us. Thank you so much that we get to be part of your body. We just rebuke all fear right now. Be gone, fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of sound mind. And go.